You can turn again to chapter 8 as we continue our study in the chapter of Christ the Mediator. We've looked at uh, some introductory matters. Last uh, time we were together in the confession, we looked specifically, we started to look at the identity of Christ, and specifically last time, his deity. Uh, This morning we'll continue in the identity of Christ, the person of Christ, by looking at the incarnation and his assumed humanity. So we're just going to read paragraphs 2 and 7, and we'll jump into the subject matter. So chapter 8, paragraphs 2 and 7. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substant and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man." Paragraph 7, Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So, rich paragraph, paragraph 2, paragraph 7 is rich also, it's a rich chapter in its entirety because it is on the topic of our precious Savior of Christ the Mediator. Um, In a movement from our last session to this session, Spurgeon notes, not that he was with us, but (laughs) uh, similarly on that topic, he he wrote, remembering that Jesus Christ is God, it now behooves us to remember that his manhood was nonetheless real and essential. John Owen writes, This is that glorious condescension of Christ, which is the greatest of all gospel mysteries, which is the life and soul of the church. We think about the Christian faith. A a central tenet, obviously, is the incarnation of the Son of God. The fact that the Son of God, uh, of uh, of equal uh, power, eternity, of one substance with the Father and Spirit, in the fullness of the times took upon him our nature for our redemption and recovery that's at the heart of the of the Christian religion and it's a truth uh, essential to the Christian religion. Um, Turretin writes on the mystery of the incarnation because as we study this particular topic um, our minds cannot fully comprehend the, the mystery that it is. And when I say mystery, I don't mean some sort of ethereal, mystical thing that we you know, can't grasp. We can apprehend uh, this truth. We lay hold of this truth as Christians, but not being infinite and being finite, we cannot fully comprehend within the grasp of our finitude the glory of the incarnation. Turretin writes, In the Christian religion, there are two questions above all others which are difficult. The first concerns the unity of the three persons in the one essence in the Trinity. The other concerns the union of the two natures in the one person in the incarnation. 
so we can know it, we can study it, we can glory in, in it, but we cannot uh, exhaust the, the infinite glory and the, the majesty of so glorious a condescension. A couple things we ought to note before we jump in. Um, as we navigate these things and, and as we consider such doctrine, we need to keep in mind the, the prevalence of, of error in our day. Um, there's a need to be taught and stable in light of this error. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of poor, errant, um, weak doctrines being propagated within Christianity at large, but even within the, the fold, if we can say, of those, uh, of those who confess a reformed Christianity. And so tightening up our, our grip upon uh, biblical doctrine being informed well and rightly concerning so glorious a doctrine will help us not to imbibe error um, and buy into some of the low Christologies that are being propagated out there. The devil loves ignorance and error. Uh, the flesh seeks novelty and the, the world glories in the rejection of truth. And so as Christians uh, brought alive by the power of the Spirit were to to seek to know truth in the face of grave error. Um, but we ought to also say, so that's sort of, you know, negatively speaking, the prevalence of error, but we ought to also say we have this ever-present joy of positively affirming the blessed truths concerning our precious Savior. Uh, doctrine does not produce a dry heartlessness. It stirs the heart to joy in the knowledge of the one eternal uh, infinite and unchangeable in his glorious perfections who assumed our nature for our redemption. Owen writes, I know in the contemplation of the glory of Christ, it will quickly overwhelm our reason and bring our understanding into a loss. But unto this loss do I desire to be brought every day. For when faith can no more act itself in comprehension, when it finds the object of it is fixed on too great and glorious to be brought into our minds and capacities, it will issue in holy admiration, humble adoration, and joyful thanksgiving. In and by its acting in them does it fill the soul with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So with that, let's look at this uh, study of the identity of Christ, and this time his assumed humanity. And similar to what we did last time, if you remember when we looked at the deity of Christ, we started by, uh, by jettisoning from our minds those things that are wrong. What, what the incarnation and the humanity of Christ does not mean in this case. Last time we said what the deity of Christ doesn't mean, and we listed a number of things, and we weren't just pulling those things out of, out of the air or making them up, but in the history of the rejection of the deity of Christ, those things had been affirmed. And so we want to, again, cl cleanse our minds, if you will, of, uh, of any notions of bad theology, or at least inform our minds that these things are not what the incarnation and humanity of Christ mean. So let's just work through these as, as quickly as we can. Uh, first off, we do not mean by the incarnation and humanity of Christ, we do not mean that he, that is the Son of God, mutated from deity into humanity. So that when we read, uh, in the beginning um, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word uh, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, that became uh, doesn't mean that the Son of God somehow mutated from deity into humanity, so as he is uh, no longer uh, deity. Uh, we do not mean that, the, uh, that he only appeared to the eyes of men as human. 
uh, an error in the, in the history of the church, that he only appeared to the eyes of men as human. A form of this uh, is in the, the foreground in um, John's epistles when he's writing concerning Antichrist. He is Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ had come in the, in, in the flesh. Um, thirdly, we do not mean that he came into the world with a heavenly body. Uh, that it was a heavenly body, that either he did not come into the world through the, the vessel, if you will, of the Virgin Mary, or that he just passed through her as through a vessel. Uh, Cyril of Jerusalem on this, these particular two errors, the only begotten Son of God was made man, not in seeming and mere show, but in truth, nor yet by passing through the Virgin as through a channel, but was of her made truly flesh and truly nourished with milk, and did truly eat as we do, and truly drink as we do. For if the incarnation was a phantom, salvation is a phantom also. A very important phrase in the, in the history of, of the church, um, because as our theological heroes throughout the ages were combating heresy, they were combating at the point in this case on the true humanity that if we reject the true humanity, then we reject the salvation that the Son of God who assumed humanity affords us. If we reject his true deity, we reject the salvation that he brings. And if we reject, reject his true humanity, then we also therefore reject the blessing of salvation. Fourthly, we do not mean that the enfleshment of the Son of God was simply that of a body only. Fifthly, we do not mean that the incarnation was such that the Son of God assumed flesh with an animal soul, but not a human soul or spirit. That's an error of old by someone uh, named Apollinaris. And actually, it's propagated in our own day by such uh, persons like William Lane Craig and, and some others. Um, so on that, another quote. So he didn't just assume body. He didn't just assume flesh without a human soul or spirit. So Gregory of Nazianzus on this, if anyone has put his trust in him as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. So I think we're going to see repeatedly as we work through these things, the, the intimate connection to, the inseparable connection between the doctrine of God the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. These things can be considered systematically and with a study of the confession in separate chapters and, and separately, but they are inseparable with regards to the blessed theology of the Word of God because we can see how intimately linked here Christology, a proper understanding of deity and humanity, uh, affect the salvation that the one who is both God and man yet one Christ affords. Um, Sixthly, we do not mean that in the incarnation, deity and humanity are mixed or mingled, resulting in a new product, Jesus Christ. So we don't have you know, deity and humanity coming together, again, being mixed or mingled, resulting in, in an end result, you know, an equal sign, Jesus Christ, as if deity plus humanity equals 
Jesus Christ. Uh, Seventhly, we do not mean that he divested himself of or temporarily laid aside deity or divine attributes or divine prerogatives, whether temporarily or permanently, in the incarnation or in order to take on man's nature. Owen on this. By this infinite condescension to be a suffering man, he lost nothing of his power as God omnipotent, nothing in his infinite wisdom or glorious grace. He could still do all that he could do as God from eternity. If there be anything, therefore, in a coalescency of infinite power with infinite condescension to constitute a sanctuary for distressed sinners, it is all in Christ Jesus. And if we see him not glorious herein, it is because there is no light of faith in us. On this particular point, we have in the Bible, for example, the language of the Son of God coming down from heaven. Um, We see that language. In fact, Christ using it himself on more than one occasion in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. Um, we have that same language picked up. Well, similar language by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world sinners to save. And the creeds pick up this language speaking of you know, the Son of God who came down from heaven for us men and, and for our salvation. But we need to understand that that coming down Uh, doesn't really mean that he came down, literally speaking. Remember that God is omnipresent. That applies to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Son of God was not locally in heaven and then departed there so as to not be there anymore when he came in the incarnation. Uh, The same goes with uh, uh, omnipotence and omniscience. He didn't set aside his all-powerfulness in the incarnation. When he's a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, he is at the same time upholding all things by the word of his power. Um, Omniscience. Uh, When we read things like uh, Jesus Christ saying that he he doesn't know the day or hour, but the Father only, of judgment. Uh, That's, of course, Christ speaking to his assumed humanity or... Uh, according to his assumed humanity. As God, he knows all things. The God of heaven and earth cannot collapse or divest himself uh, of omniscience. Um, two quotes that are very important on this and that you can see, uh, Cyril and Calvin here, and the language that they use upholding the proper doctrine of God and the proper doctrine of Uh, of Christ. Remember that as we go through a study of Christ and as we consider his incarnation and humanity, all of those things from chapter 2, paragraphs 1 and 2, are the same during the incarnation. He is still infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's impassable. He's immutable. He's simple. He's most absolute. Um, He's independent of the creature. None of those things change with respect to the incarnation. This is Cyril on Uh, sort of omnipresence not being cast aside in the incarnation. The eternal word subjected himself to birth for us and came forth man from a woman without casting off that which he was. Although he assumed flesh and blood, he remained what he was, God in essence and in truth. For although visible and a child in swaddling clothes, and even in the bosom, uh, the, the bosom of his virgin mother, he filled all creation as God and was a fellow ruler with him who begat him. For the Godhead is without quantity and dimension and cannot have limits. 
Uh, also, Calvin on this, for even if the word in his immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that, without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross, yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning." So you see, when, we, when Christ uses the language, I came down from heaven, he's speaking with regards to the fact that that coming down from heaven or coming into the world refers to his assumption of our humanity, not somehow as deity departing from one location to another, uh, whereby he is no longer found in that previous location. Um, that is, that's pagan uh, deity, small g God, that's not the God of heaven and earth, or the God of the Bible. Um, eighthly, right? uh, we do not mean that he conjoined himself with a human person and was to him unified in dignity, honor, and person. Notice that important language there. We do not mean that he conjoined himself with a human person. He did not take to himself a human person. There are not two Christs, two sons, there is one Christ. Remember the language of the confession here near the end, uh, almost, uh, almost at the very end. Uh, which person, singular, is very, God and very, uh, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that was the error of, uh, of Nestorianism back in the day, um, in the 5th century, where he believed that the Son of God conjoined himself with the human person, and that the union was not a substantial union of two natures, uh, but rather it was just this union between two people that was marked by dignity, honor, and purpose. So the last thing we need to jettison from our Christological contemplations is, we do not mean that, though unchanging in his deity, he added to himself a human nature. Now, this is probably the least. Um, this is probably the least impactful, or this isn't horrible, damning heresy. Um, and in fact, it's actually usually seen as a, a noble and well-intentioned response to subtraction theology. You know, where those who are saying that Christ somehow subtracted. Uh, you know, that emptying of himself in Philippians 2 is that he actually did change, that he actually did empty himself of some measure of deity. This addition of human nature, which is used uh, by many, um, is usually, again, noble and with good intentions. It's just not terminologically the best, um, and uh, it also doesn't represent, or it can be, um, it, it can also uh, reflect a, a bad theology as well. So more on that as we work through it. So those are the lists of, that's the list of things that um, we are not to see as the incarnation and humanity of Christ. So then what do we mean when we speak of the incarnation and humanity of Christ? And we'll look at the confession here again in a moment in the specific language that it uses. But to sort of sum this all up, Casting away what we just listed and owning positively what it does mean, we do mean that the Son of God, without casting off that which he eternally is, took to himself that which he was not in the assumption of our nature to be his very own, that he became true man in the act of assuming and therefore uniting human nature to himself, body and soul, yet without sin. So, 
the son's assumption of man's nature is what we want to continue to look at now and positively speaking. So first off, before we get to the confessional language, we just want to simply note from the confession again, uh, the confessional language of incarnation that is, who is the one who is assuming our nature? Um, the language is, uh, is explicit in paragraph 2 right at the beginning, the Son of God. And it further identifies who that Son of God is. Uh, obviously, you know, pulling from the Bible various texts and um, assuming that we have all read chapter 2, paragraphs 1 and 2 prior to this. The son, er, paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who, upholder, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. So that's, that's the one who is assuming man's nature. And I, I think we are to, not I think, we are to, this, this sets us up to then glory in what follows, the condescension that follows. Uh, to, to marvel in, in Gill's language, the amazing stoop, where this one that we just read of is the one who was born of Mary, who took upon himself our nature for our redemption. Um, it's a blessed thing. Yes, while we're studying, again, we're, we study doctrine, but not unto the end that we'll just be, uh, you know, uh, dry, heartless academics. We study doctrine so that we can glory in the blessed truth of our God and His Christ, the blessed redemption that we have in Father, Son, and in Holy Spirit. And so this sets us up for glorying in the incarnation. So, um, the one assuming man's nature is the Son of God. Uh, it's not, we want to say, the Father or Spirit that became incarnate. Um, you know, some errors of old speaking, uh, or some language that people will use with regards to the Trinity, you know, dying on the cross and just bad theology that doesn't, um, that doesn't uh, properly, you know, parse out a good theology and Christology. It wasn't the Father or Spirit who assumed man's nature. It wasn't the Trinity that assumed man's nature. It was the Son of God who assumed man's nature. Uh, a Turretin, a Turretin writes, Although the divine nature may properly be said to have been incarnated in the Son, it does not follow that the whole Trinity became incarnate. The divine nature is incarnate in the person of the Word. So it is the Son who assumes man's nature. And just, just to kind of... Uh, speak a little bit with regards to the breadth of language that the historical church has used with regards to the incarnation. We're going to look at some, some terms and phrases, and hopefully these will help us because it'll, it'll help us sort of hone in on what the Bible is getting at and what the history of the church. Remember, the history of the church that Christ is building uh, by His Spirit that the, this church has used language throughout the years to, to argue for, to propagate, to protect, and to glory in uh, the doctrine of the Incarnation. So some terms and phrases uh, with biblical precedent that have been used in the history of Christianity to encapsulate the truth uh, of the assumption of man's nature by the Son of God. Embodying. Inhumanation. There's, there's a good one for you. The inhumanation, and there's language warrant for that uh, English translation. His conversation in and by the flesh. His manifestation by humanity. The advent. Here's one for you that you can write down. The uh, exinanition. The humiliation. That simply means the emptying. And 
theologians have used that. In fact, John Owen uses that a fair bit. The exinonition. The humiliation, the appearance, and the condescension. But here are some terms that we're more familiar with. Uh, we want to speak with regards to the assumption itself, the language of assumption, the language of union, and the language of incarnation. But when we use then, moving on to the language of assumption, when we use this language, we're using it positively to assert the, the, the biblical language from Philippians 2, where Christ took to himself the form of a bondservant. So the language of assumption is biblically legitimate. And as we'll see, that language is protected and defended uh, by the church throughout her ages. But also to exclude um, subtraction or addition incarnation language. So it's not the case that the Son of God subtracted from himself in becoming incarnate and taking to himself man's nature as if he had to in some way for it to be a real incarnation. And it's not that he added humanity to himself, but rather that he took it to himself or he assumed it unto a personal union. Um, so on, on this particular note, so no subtraction, no addition. Is this, is this true or is it just, you know, Cam Porter uh, talking about it? No, it's not just me talking about it. It's the Bible and it's the history of the church. Some quotes with regards to the incarnation not being by subtraction. Whilst he remained what he was, he took that which he was not, Chrysostom. Um, and then a, a really good quote by, um, by Gregory of Nazianzus, For he whom you now treat with contempt was once above you. He who is now man was once the un uncompounded. What he was, he continued to be. What he was not, he took to himself. In the beginning he was uncaused. For what is the cause of God? But afterwards, for a cause, he was born. Also Cyril of Alexandria. This expression, how for, uh, however, the word was made flesh, uh, John 1.14, can mean nothing else but that he partook of flesh and blood like to us. He made our body his own and came forth man from a woman. Not casting off his existence as God or his generation of God the Father, but even in taking to himself flesh, remaining what he was. This, the declaration of the correct faith, proclaims everywhere. Turretin, emptied himself is not to be taken simply and absolutely as if he ceased to be God, which is impious even to think. He emptied himself not by putting off what he was, but by assuming what he was not. And then a particular Baptist friend of ours, John Gill, Though he took that which he had not before, he lost nothing of what he had. So there's a measure of great clarity in the history of the church that the Son of God did not cast off that which he was. He simply took on that which he was not. Now, no addition then. So if it's not by subtraction, it must be by addition. And again, this, uh, the use of addition uh, by some theologians in our own circles, it's not horrible. It's just not as technically precise and, um, and could convey theology that isn't really conducive with, uh, with, uh, with biblical and confessional doctrine of God. Uh, this is Thomas Aquinas on no addition. By the incarnation, nothing is added to nor altered in the divine nature and personality of Christ. The human nature adds nothing to either of them. They remain the same they ever were. 
The human nature has its subsistence in his person and has a glory and excellency given it. But that gives nothing to, at all to the nature and person of the divine word and son of God. His person was not in any way augmented or perfected by having assumed a human nature. A John Owen, it was no addition unto him. There is nothing can add unto God, unto his satisfaction. There is nothing wanting in himself unto his own eternal blessedness. There can be no addition made unto God. Therefore, it must be an infinite condescension in him and a humbling of himself to behold the things done in heaven and on earth. Now, one more and of more recent uh, memory here, A.W. Pink. It was not by adding manhood to Godhead that his personality was formed. The Trinity is eternal and unchangeable. A new person is not substituted for the second member of the Trinity, neither is a fourth added. The person of Christ is just the eternal word who in time, by the power of the Spirit, through the instrument of the virgin's womb, took a human nature, not at that time a man, but the seed of Abraham, into personal union with himself. So when we talk about assumption, we're talking about that as contrasted to subtraction on the one side and addition on the other side. So some definitions then. What does assumption mean? And assumption is in our, we'll get to that in a moment, but assumption is in the confession here. When we read the Son of God, and then, uh, and then we ra- later read, when the fullness of time was come, did take upon him man's nature. Very simple uh, a definition of assumption is taking upon oneself. And that's the language that's, that's used right there. He took to himself, or he took upon himself, man's nature. He didn't add to himself man's nature, but rather he took it to himself. So the definition of assumption generally, you know, often we assume, <laughs> we assume that assumption means, uh, or when we think of assume, we think of, you know, thinking of, about something perhaps without justification or something like that, you know, assume or, or assumption. But Uh, With regards to another meaning of it, and that which is captured in biblical theology, uh, assumption simply means taking unto oneself, generally speaking. Specifically, with regards to our topic, um, Owen says, the ineffable divine act whereby the person of the Son of God assumed our nature or took it into a personal subsistence with himself. And as we'll see, this language has a great heritage uh, throughout the ages. Now, another word that we also use as we study the doctrine of Christ and the incarnation is union. Um, the, The language of union is used at the end of this paragraph where we read, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. So we have the language of assumption in took to himself man's nature and the language of union being inseparably joined together. So deity and humanity inseparably joined together uh, in one person. So the language of union is very often used and often used again in contrast to addition. Uh, The Cambridge Dictionary simply describes union and this would be familiar to you, the act or state of being joined together. With regards to specifically now the incarnation, uh, Owen writes regarding this, the only necessary consequent of the assumption of the human nature 
or the incarnation of the Son of God is the personal union of Christ or the inseparable subsistence of the assumed nature in the person of the Son. Maybe more simply here, Thomas, in describing the difference between assumption and union, writes, uh, so there's an objection that he's dealing with. It seems that union and assumption are not different. The response is that union implies the relation, whereas uh, assumption implies the action. So coming back to the confession then, the action Christ, the Son of God, takes to himself man's nature, the result of that is the relation two natures, divine and human, joined together uh, in one person. I'm going to walk to uh, Kleenex, wherever it is. Uh, thank you. And since I'm still on the microphone as I walk back, so assumption and, and union um, are different. One is the act and the other is the, the relation that um, accrues by virtue of that act taking place. Now, uh, incarnation then. So we have assumption, union, and then incarnation. Very often incarnation is used um, synonymously with assumption. It's used interchangeably with, with Christ assuming our nature, and that's perfectly fine. Sometimes it's used in a, in a larger sense where it speaks to the entire mission of the Son. So the entire sort of economy of redemption uh, executed by the Son of God in time and in history. So it would include his assumption, but it, was, it would also include his humiliation and sufferings uh, unto death. Um, uh, incarnation, uh, you know, simply comes, or the language, we, we have a transliteration, or we use a transliteration, incarnation. Uh, the English translation might be enfleshment. Um, in fact, that's what Cyril uses. He uses enfleshment often. And I think he even says, or even better, the enmanment of the Son of God. So the incarnation simply means that Christ took to himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. Um, so with regards to assumption, um, let's listen to the, uh, just the confessional language again with assumption and union. The Son of God did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. What's the biblical witness with regards to this truth then? Um, does the Bible speak to this? Yes, of course it does. Now in the Old Testament, we'll look at some New Testament passages. In the Old Testament, um, we have the announcement that from Genesis 3.15, remember that there would be a hero born of woman who will crush the serpent with his heel. As we read through further, uh, you know, further old covenant revelation, we find that this one would be divine. And in fact, in Isaiah, we see both of those things come together. A son born who would be divine. First in Isaiah 7.14, uh, the virgin will be with child and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew translates that for us, God with us. So a son would be born of a virgin, and it, he would be God. Uh, and then he builds on that in Isaiah 9.6, a, a passage often, uh, often read around this time of year. But, um, you know, uh, a son is given to you, a child is born, a son is given to you, the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called, you know, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace. Um, so when we get to the New Testament, we have the writers of the New Testament um, 
announcing that that blessed truth announced in the Old Covenant has taken place. Now, we already know John uh, 1.14. Pastor Butler's been preaching through the Gospel of John and has rightly referred back to that theology as foundational as he's been working through it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews for a moment. The book of Hebrews. Here we have... Uh, wonderful language that speaks to the incarnation of Christ. And as we see here, and as we ought to always note as we're studying this, you know, we're using big words, we're using these, these definitions, we're, we're removing from our minds some maybe bad terms and, and, and bad theology, but we always ought to note that the incarnation is for the purpose of redeeming sinners. You know, in our precision or the interest of our precision has the end to, to glory in uh, and to ensure that we're glorying in the proper thing, which is the Son of God coming into our lower shame to redeem us. Notice in Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, or we could say, take on the nature of angels, but he does take on the nature of the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So we see this language of incarnation there spoken of, and we see the purpose linked to it. And we ought to never divorce the purpose from the thing itself. What is the end of the assumption of man's nature by the Son of God? What is the end of the incarnation? It is that God's elect, God's elect sinners might be saved uh, by grace through the perfection of a conquering Redeemer. Uh, We can also note, um, well actually we should turn to Philippians 2. We're, We're very well familiar with that passage and as we've noted before, Philippians 2, as we've noted before, that passage is a blessed summary of, of the Bible, really, the, the intention of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible, communicating, setting forth the Savior of men. Um, and not only does it encapsulate uh, the deity of Christ, but it also encapsulates his incarnation and in true humanity, and then the purpose for that. Uh, and then the reward given to him. But for our consideration this morning, notice verses 6 and 7. This Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation or emptied himself. And notice what this emptying means, or how is it that the Son of God made himself of no reputation? How is it that the Son of God emptied himself? It's this later clause taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he didn't empty himself or make himself of no reputation by voluntary casting off aspects of his deity, but rather he emptied himself or made himself of no reputation by the assumption of man's nature for his redemption and recovery. Uh, we can also note 1 Timothy 1.15. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes again that this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world sinners to save. The creedal witness after this apostolic era speaks of the incarnation uh, and the assumption in this way. The Nicene Creed, 
For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Creed of Chalcedon, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. The Athanasian Creed, although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to Himself. Again, that definition of assumption, taking to Himself. And then, of course, we have the Second London Confession of Faith, which is being faithful to those creeds and councils and confessions before it by upholding the, the same language that Christ in the fullness of the times took upon Him man's nature. Um, just, a, just some language from the church then, and I think what, what I'm trying to do at least, or what I'm hoping we're doing here, is gaining an appreciation for the importance of upholding assumption unto the uniting of these two natures over and against subtraction or addition. Because remember, that which is perfect cannot have addition made unto it. God cannot add anything to Himself. I know that language of cannot with God sometimes sounds strange to us, but remember, God cannot lie. God cannot deny Himself. God cannot, because He is perfect being, add to Himself. Um, and so throughout the ages of the church, from its outset, following the apostolic era, remember Paul is already using the language of, of assumption in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. But from that point forward, the church has been um, positively asserting that language and theology while at the same time opposing um, the language of addition and the language of subtraction. So moving forward from, from Athanasius uh, up to our own day, it is, uh, it is we who were the cause of His taking human form and for our salvation. Again, that important language of taking. He freely took our nature to Himself. Augustine. Uh, Hillary, uh, he says, Christ has assumed the nature of our flesh, now inseparable from Himself. The Son of God visited us when we were nothing, and after having assumed our nature and united it to Himself, He became higher than all. Chrysostom. He who took our nature. Gregory of Nyssa. The Son of, good, uh, the Son of God took our nature's true manhood. Leo Maximus. Again, Leo, He took our nature on Him and made it His own. Again, Leo, Christ took our nature upon Him for our salvation. Theodoretus, God the Word assumed not only a body but also a soul. Uh, Vincentius, the Word assumed our nature. Thomas Aquinas, the Son of God assumed an entire human nature. John Owen, He took our nature upon Him. Owen again, the ineffable divine act whereby the person of the Son of God assumed our nature or took it into a personal subsistence with Himself. Nehemiah Cox, who was uh, the father, uh, father of our con uh, confession, if you will. The assumption of the human nature was yet more proper and necessary for their, their sakes, for whom he was anointed of God as their high priest and Savior. Again, that language, the assumption of the human nature. John Gill, at his incarnation, he came from heaven to earth by the assumption of human nature. And then lastly, Spurgeon, the Son of God took our nature upon Himself. 
So you can see it just doesn't happen to be you know, a, 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 you know, a happy coincidence that these people are all using, these theologians are all using that same language of assumption or took to himself man's nature. There's a deliberate, uh, there, there is, um, uh, you know, a deliberateness to this uh, in protecting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his true humanity against false notions of varying gravity um, that would seek to, uh, to pull, God, uh, pull God down from up above and not ascribe a proper humanity to the Son of God. Um, so hopefully we can appreciate that strong stream of, uh, of assumption throughout the ages. Now, we want to note as we move along the Trinity and the Son's assumption of man's nature and the work of the Incarnation. You've heard Pastor Butler speak before about the undivided work of the Trinity, that <clears throat> excuse me, all the outward acts of God are the undivided acts, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how can we then say that it was the Son of God who took to himself man's nature? Well, there's some important distinctions as we speak with regards to um, the Trinity and an outward act, um, but that particular act terminating, if you will, on the Son of God alone. This is Mahler, and hopefully this helps to some degree <laughs> to, to wrap our minds around it, because we want to fight against this idea that in, in the Trinity, we have three separately willing, uh, you know, self-conscious individuals, Father, Son, and Spirit, as if we're parsing them up, as if we're gravely entering into the realm of tritheism, that they all do separate things, that, you know, the entire work of God is the contributive work of individual acts done uh, by each person unto that sort of you know, consummating uh, larger work of, of, the, uh, of God. Um, this is Muller on the Trinity with respect to the Incarnation. Like all the outwardly directed works of God, the Incarnation is defined as a common work of the Godhead. Thus the Logos, or Son, does not incarnate himself apart from the will of the Father and the Spirit. So in support of this, the Bible states, first, Galatians 4.4, the Father sent forth the Son. Second, John 1.14, the Son assumed flesh. Third, Matthew 1.18, the conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so we distinguish between the work of incarnation, considered efficiently, and in terms of origin, that is, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the work of incarnation considered with a view towards its end, or terminatively, an end. It is the work of the undivided Trinity, but terminatively it is the work of the Son. John Owen, with regards to this, and, and again, hopefully this helps us to wrap our minds around, and we're, we're not going to finish today. We're going to stop here shortly, and maybe if there are any questions that you have, uh, I know a lot of you know, I'm talking fast. There are a lot of words. There are a lot of phrases. Um, but hopefully as we, we move along this, uh, this journey in the doctrine of Christ, we'll be able to, again, cast off error, own the truth, and be better as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ with our, uh, our confessions and our articulations of our blessed Savior. This is John Owen. As unto original efficiency, you know, power, the perfection of power, the assumption was the act of the divine nature, and so consequently of the Father, Son, and Spirit. For so are all outward acts of God, the divine nature being the immediate principle of all such operations. As unto authoritative designation, it was the act of the Father. As unto the formation of the human nature, it was the peculiar act of the Spirit. 
as unto the term of the assumption or taking of our nature unto himself, it was the peculiar act of the person of the Son. Now, with all that said, isn't it glorious to see the, the, the oneness of the working of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the end that Christ would become incarnate and save a multitude of sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Uh, you know, hopefully as we work through this, uh, perhaps not with the aid of, of the instructor, you glory in the Christ of our confession because he is so glorious to behold in all of these perfections and all of these variegated aspects of his person and his work. Now, just very briefly, where do we see that in the confession then? In, in just these particular passages, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, in paragraph 1, we read with respect to the Father, this covenant made between God and the Lord Jesus, and so then the sending of the Son based upon that particular covenant. Then we see the Holy Spirit uh, overpowering Mary, overshadowing Mary, the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, making her womb fertile in the act of overshadowing. And we also see the Spirit in paragraph 3 that the Son, the incarnate Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. So as we see the Son being alone, the one who is incarnate, we ought to appreciate that it, it, there is the Trinity at work in the Son's assumption of human nature and the work of the Incarnation. Everywhere we look in our Bibles and whenever we read of the Son of God in His incarnate, perfect mediatorial work, we ought to consider Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that particular work. Um, well, why don't I close in prayer there? We'll, we'll uh, work through a little bit more of this next time. There's a lot uh, to be had there for sure. Um, but I'll pray, and then if there are any questions that has come up in your minds during, uh, during the last 40 minutes, then, uh, then you can ask those questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together studying our Christ. We pray that as we move along through this, you would help us to gain a proper knowledge, a, a good knowledge of our Savior, that we would grow in grace and knowledge, that we would rejoice in our Christ as we uh, fill our minds with the knowledge of him. Help us now as we go into worship to do so in spirit and in truth that we uh, would be filled with joy, that we would be filled with that, uh, that uncrackable hope, that we would be filled, Lord God, with, uh, with such measures of the Spirit that we, that we might worship you aright and rejoice with each other in the incarnate Son of God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, any, uh, any, yes, Leslie, and then Joy. Yeah. Like if I said to you, um, I I added a new exercise regimen in my week. Yeah. Or I said to you, I assumed a new exercise regimen in my week. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, the second one is natural, in natural vernacular speech, right? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. The first one is more natural. Yeah. But do and I get what you're saying about what is like addition suggests a lack. Right. Or, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's not. So, so yeah. I, I realize that, but then yeah. technically I'm wrong, though. Um, technically you're wrong? Well, yeah, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah technically, okay. from a theological point of view, I would, be, I would be communicating a slight error or a nuanced error no, by, saying, by, saying the second, by saying the first one and not the second. No. 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 But if I hear saying, as soon as better than addition. It, yeah, um, I, I think because we're dealing we're dealing with the uniqueness of perfect being, 
There's no real there's no real analogy that we can sort of obtain in the realm of in the realm of created things because we're talking about perfect being. That's why when we're when we're using this language, if we try to find some sort of analogy down below, it, it probably won't work all that well. There there is some there are some helps though um, with regards to understanding uh, assumption rather than addition that maybe, um, you know, actually in, the, in the, the email that I sent you, there's some helpful analogies to talk about assumption and what it means, but there, there are some help. But yeah, I think the problem kind of is, you know, it's not our common parlance, but in theology, it is common parlance. And, and, and I think the distinction between those two has to do with there is only one perfect being, and that's God. And this is why we can't sort of describe it that way. Uh, Joy. So my question, thank you for the teaching, seven or eight times, maybe I'll kind of get it, but <laughs> <laughs> at the crucifixion, mm -hmm. Jesus in his human nature had so much anxiety, mm -hmm. he sweat blood, mm -hmm. which would make him even more sensitive to pain. Mm -hmm. He prayed three times, an angel came and strengthened him, he prayed all the harder, and what I... I always wondered what exactly was he anxious about? Like what what did he what happened on the cross that mm -hmm. he had such anxiety? It, it was much more than just a physical death. Yeah, like, it was much more than the physical death. In fact, the uh, Isaiah fifty three speaks about the the travail of the soul of the son as he's being uh, as the father is bruising him, and so it has to do with Christ bearing uh, of the wrath due. To those for whom he's dying, so it's more than physical pain. It's, it, in fact, it's much more than physical pain. It's though we can't discount that. It's the it's the weight of uh, of him bearing the wrath, uh, the substitutionarily for the sinners for whom he's dying. There's also a, there's also a passage in uh, in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I believe it's 12:2. Uh, let me just try and get there quickly here. That speaks to the same thing that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53. So in, in Hebrews 12, 2, uh, we read, uh, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's enduring the cross. He's, he has this travail of soul. He's, um, you know, he's, he's anxious. He's said, he'll worry someone to death. Um, and I think it's because he, you know, he's about in the garden, for example, and on the cross. Uh, but on the in the garden, he's he talks about you know the, the cup that he has to drink. That cup is the wrath of God uh, that he'll drink clean as he as he bears that wrath upon the cross. So when he's talking about you know when he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" When um, when even before that he is wearied in the garden, it's because he's about to bear the wrath of God. So it's not, it isn't just the physical, like you said, it's that spiritual aspect. So it's, okay, so he's in love. The Trinity's in love almost with each other. And it's the turning on, he, he endures anger of the one he loves. He endures what, sir? Anger, wrath. Yeah, he endures. Yeah, he's enduring the, the wrath. The, the wrath of according when, to his. But he's always, according to his humanity. Exactly. Like yeah. He's always been joined 
Yeah, they're in, inseparable, I'll father, son, and spirit. In yeah. love. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and that's then, one now, of the things. Now he's, in, according to his humanity, he's enduring. He's, in, he's enduring, the, yeah, the wrath of God for, for his elect, for, for his people. So, yeah. And yet he still loves, like he looks after Mary. He's still yeah. loving. Oh, right, at the, cro at the cross, yeah. he's taking care of his mother on the cross. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Well, to that, I was trying to explain to some, because even during that, uh, during, during the event of undertaking on to the wrath of God, 